cool, man. Have fun. Thanks. Always have fun on this podcast. More like rarely. Always. I live the podcast and I podcast to live. <laughs> what? I did not expect that phrase to come out of your mouth. Me and that tattooed. My first ever I tattoo. I live to podcast and I podcast to live. Dear Lord. This is Making It Up, co-hosted by myself, Sharice Poon, and Eugene Can. We come together on a weekly basis to talk about things that we are interested in, have questions about, want to get each other's thoughts on. Making It Up is produced by Makin, which is original storytelling at its purest, through captivating audio, engaging words, and beautiful visuals. Making It Up is an exercise in analyzing and dissecting important movements in creative culture. It's an opportunity to sound off to each other on the complex and intertwined world we live in. We try to come to some sort of conclusion in order to be helpful to you, our listeners, but really we are working through things and we appreciate you working through them with us. Making It Up is supported by our generous Patreon members. To help us keep going, consider becoming a member at patreon.com slash making for Discord access, exclusive newsletters, and more. Let's go. Dude, I'm surprised that's not a t-shirt already. Maybe it is. I could see someone like Maybe it Joe is. Rogan selling that. We haven't checked. Maybe we shouldn't say this out loud. Someone's going to take this idea and sell it. I don't want to be associated with that t-shirt, so it's okay. Oh, I'm going to make one now. It's going to be quotations, and then it's like, <laughs> dash, Eugene All right, can. I've, I've already figured out how we're going to release it. What's the plan? We'll sell it as an NFT, and once we hit a threshold, we'll actually produce it. Okay. All right. I'm not. Well, this is not serious, guys. This is not actually happening. We're not I mean, actually. I, if you can design it tonight, Eugene, be NFB tomorrow. I'm not doing that. I shall force you to. I have better, better things to do. Anyway, I actually had something legitimate to talk about in this intro as opposed to this banter. Banter. We heard from the writer of an article whose piece we discussed about 10 episodes ago was episode 162. It's the episode when we talk about the Chinatown market name change. And it was topic two, and I picked it. And it was about an article written by Isaiah Magzino titled Amid Anti-Asian Hate Crimes, I Found Beauty in Filipino Attire. It was published on W. And I have to apologize because listening back to the segment, it sounded as though I was attributing some thoughts to him, which were not his thoughts, but rather my thoughts. And I can understand how listening back to that segment, it does sound like I'm ascribing a kind of belief to him. And the belief in question is this belief that Asian Americans are only worthy based off of their contributions to society. And he's really saying the opposite of that. Anyway, wanted to clear that up because we were in contact with the writer. And I think it's just a useful lesson for myself slash both of us to be careful in the editing and also the way we talk about things because I think sometimes when not not to make excuses for us but when we're speaking to each other we kind of understand the leaps in thought yeah the logical leaps yeah but it doesn't come across that way obviously and to also, listeners yeah, who and are also, not in the room I think the part about being very deliberate and clear about around when a quote from someone else starts and stops is totally. probably helpful. I mean, totally. Because I don't know when we started doing this, but you and I, maybe like even 50 or some episodes ago, we started quoting quite at length from yeah. articles. And I think in an audio format. Unlike a written one where you have very clear quotation marks. It's trickier. So we can be doing better. Yep. With regards to that. All right. 
get into today's topics of discussion? Yeah. You want to go first? <laughs> There's so much disclaimer today. Why? So I picked an article that is published on Future, which is a new platform launched by A16Z, a venture capital firm. And I genuinely picked this. Because she loves not, venture capital. Oh my God. Completely not for that reason. So I picked this not intending to talk about venture capital at all. And then I sent it to Eugene and he was like, supporting future and a16z already are we and i was like i, don't, I will I don't give know what context i was half joking because when a16z announced they were going to launch this new call it like a what well, is a media platform right it is but it is a media platform the general argument was that because a16z a16z is a pretty big and well-known brand within the venture space uh, a lot of credibility that comes with it based off of their bets could they potentially utilize their content slash journalism as basically content marketing? So if I... Well, definitely. Yeah. But I think the articles can still be interesting. So I do have to start my subject with this disclosure in relation to the fact that this yeah. is published on A16Z. The author of the article I want to talk about is Wes Cow, and she is the co-founder of Alt-MBA, which is a cohort-based course is also the co-founder of Maven, a platform for cohort-based courses that H16Z is leading the Series A round for. So that's the disclosure part of this, that the author of this article is writing about the area in which her company works in, which also A16Z is helping fund. I feel like I've heard about Alt-MBA from the Malcolm Gladwell podcast. I had not heard of Alt-MBA or Maven before this, but I do follow Wes Cow on Twitter, which is how I came across this. And I th- having said all of this stuff about like future, the platform and A16Z and venture capital, I genuinely do think that the article has an interesting subject worth reading and discussing with regards to how we learn. So actually what I want to talk mm-hmm. about is the method in which people learn the best. So Wes Cow opens with this premise which is that educational content is really cheap and abundant on the internet. Totally. Yeah, I would have no problem with making this statement. You can find educational content on YouTube and newsletters, on blogs, social media, et cetera, et cetera. Long, long list. Which is is, great, in my opinion. It is great. great. It is great. And she has this amazing stat. You know, people view learning-related content on YouTube 500 million times every day across the world. Okay, so that's pretty cool. I think that's pretty neat. And I think you and I and a lot of our listeners will be familiar with platforms like Udemy. Did I say that right? Udemy? You and I and a lot of our listeners are probably familiar with platforms like Udemy and LinkedIn Learning, which is, I didn't know this, the new name for Linda, Mm L-Y-N-D-A. And you can pay for access to courses where you learn all types of things, probably the things that I'm most familiar with is you can learn like how to code and how to use Adobe Creative Cloud programs. All right. And you can learn other things mm-hmm. yeah, besides that. So Westcal makes the argument that this abundance of free or accessibly priced online learning channels makes it hard for creators and instructors to actually make a living off their expertise. And also that this model doesn't benefit learners as much as the channels argue that they do. Okay, so she's saying that on both sides, it could be better, both for the instructors 
and for the people trying to learn something. Here's a quote. For many creators, the implications are discouraging. Content generation is a losing battle. Traditional social platforms silo off monetization activities from community building. You post your expertise on YouTube or Twitter, then have to pursue other ways, brand partnerships, low margin merchandise to actually capitalize on it. Creators are effectively giving away valuable content, which means learners no longer pay a premium or at all. In relation to that quote, I would say this is beneficial to learners because there's a wealth of free content. But I'm trying not to jump ahead because I'm, I'm like, I understand with within general reason, like the the opportunity and for creators, arguments, I think across the board. OK, right. So I don't want to interject too much and derail Let me lay you. the land a little yes. bit more and then we can go into it. And regarding the other side, she writes, counterintuitively, most learners are actually worse off for all this cheap, abundant content. It's become clear over the years that more access does not translate to more engagement. Many of the online course providers that gained prominence in the aughts sold the pretense that customers could learn anything, but relied on the learner's willpower and motivation to stick through a course. So having said that, she says, you know, what we're going to see happen is a rise of cohort-based courses. That's her phrase. As opposed to what she calls MOOCs, massively. Massively online open courses. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, rise of cohort-based courses in comparison to MOCs, which is massively online open courses. Mm-hmm. And there's this chart that like compares the two. I'll just run through it. Okay, so by definition, according to Westcow, a massively open online course are free, low cost, or easily accessible. They are asynchronous, self-paced, on-demand, evergreen. The ideal topics are for knowledge transfer. The student interaction is so low. The cost is usually $10 to $50 and maybe up to $250. The model is passive content consumption and the instructor engagement is set it and forget it. So you make it once and then you publish, but at low price points and margins. In comparison, cohort-based courses are interactive courses taken by a group of students who advance through the course together often with community and active learning at the core. It is live and asynchronous, time-bound with set start and end dates. The ideal topics are skills building, topics that benefit from feedback and practice. The student interaction is community, price points $500 to $5,000, and the modality is active learning. And lastly, the instructor engagement requires a high degree of involvement, but you get higher price points and margins. And arguably a better outcome because... It's just much higher touch. Yeah. So basically yeah. comparing low touch versus high touch. Uh, better outcome for who? Learner or instructor? I think both. It really depends on the topic, which she says as well. So it's okay. obviously, I wouldn't say that you need a CBC, the cohort-based course for everything, right? Like you don't need a cohort-based course to learn how to change the brightness and contrast on Photoshop. Like a YouTube video fills that need. Yeah, that's fair. So I do, I don't think that, and I don't think she's not making this argument anyway. I'm just clarifying that like there are subjects for um, one or the other, one or the other yeah. types of learning. But you're right in that the, I think the most attractive thing about that cohort based course is that it pushes instructors to be better instructors because it's live and it's a dialogue with the students. And it also pushes learners to be actively participating. And what I find really interesting is that 
in some ways the instructor is this important piece of software within this interaction, right? Like the code is the information and the instructor is there to really help guide you through it and for you to make sense of it and for you to interact with it and derive a certain outcome. Because even for me, like I personally don't love to document things, but if someone asks me, I really enjoy that process of walking someone through a potential challenge or problem and how to arrive at solutions, right? And that could be put into some sort of document, but it's not really what I get excited about. Like if you had, I'd rather spend 30 minutes talking to somebody and answering questions than 30 minutes putting down my thoughts on how to do something. Yeah. And it's interesting because the entire second or maybe third section of her article goes into monetization for creators slash instructors as to how individuals like such as yourself might benefit from running a cohort based course both financially how you might benefit and how you might grow as yourself Mm -hmm. as um, an expert in whatever field it is you're doing so i think that's a compelling argument and i don't think it's for every creator because you are still talking about becoming an instructor which i think is not everyone's cup of tea yeah and it's a different skill set 100 percent. so you can be an expert at creatively making something but not the expert at teaching that thing yeah it's no different than the whole argument around athletes who are amazing athletes but Mm. don't translate off the court off the field yeah so i actually picked this article you know i didn't say why because in the beginning i was saying i didn't pick it to like talk about venture capital i picked it because i have a real life example of both which is Mm -hmm. like weird i did not realize i was doing this And then I read this article and I was like, oh, that explains like my personal experience. Yeah. I also realized that around me, a lot of things that I'm interested in actually have a strong course component. It's just never been enticing for me to go and join a course. But if I started looking further into it, like, for example, great example, recently been having like tendonitis or something wrong with my knee. So I've been watching videos on YouTube and there's this one guy, uh, I think if you, if you're in this space, you're, you're familiar, it's like knee over toes guy like that's actually his name and he has a course <laughs> he has a course that comparatively speaking is quite expensive it's 50 dollars a month like he sells it yes. separately from youtube yes and the value there is that let's say sharice wants to engage in this course or this program you take videos of you working out or doing the exercise and you can send it to their coaches and they'll critique you on your form or help walk you through it oh interesting so similar but that's kind of like a mix actually yeah you start yeah it's solo but you get engagement it with like the, the instructor yeah the top of the funnel is the free content as it always is sure. and then it trickles down into something that's more expensive but you haven't paid for it i mean i'm i mean i'm in a point right now where i'm just trying to i probably go see a physio first and then figure out what i need to do yeah yours is kind of unique because that's not really creative course because you're learning about is this like training like physical training yeah it's like physical training yeah it's a little bit different from like where my mind was at sorry i didn't mean to derail no but it's interesting that well i think what you've said is that it's a a trend for people who are giving away free content to try to push people to courses right um anyway i wanted to say for my personal experience i paid i'm okay with like saying the cost because i think that's actually interesting here 
I paid 125 US dollars, which is for me, I felt like on the higher end for a course that is more than I've ever paid before. How and long is it? It's access to a class 101 course, which is pre recorded content. So it falls into that massive online open course mm-hmm. category. But I think it's about, oh God, I've forgotten. That's because I haven't finished it, which is what goes into the thing about how we learn. So I, I bought this course because I'm really a fan of the illustrator who made it. And she's an illustrator and graphic novelist. And I picked it for, this is purely for leisure reasons, okay? Like I'm not trying to aspire professionally necessarily to like do this. Um, but I just wanted to like learn something new yeah. on my own. And I've done like the first three lessons. I want to say there are 12, but I could be wrong. I've kind of stopped. Not because I'm not interested. I am interested. But I stopped because of very human reasons, which is that like. You're bored. There's no urgency. Yeah. There's no timeline. I'm doing it on my own. It's exactly what Wes Cow says, which sounds like, you know, I'm like very much buying her argument. But it's true about humans. Like if you pay for this thing and it's like this thing that requires a lot of self-motivation becomes very easy to not follow through like i can't tell you how many times that i've just neglected to go to the gym but if there is a session that requires me to be somewhere at a certain time and play with other people like uh, for example i told you today i'm like yo i gotta start on the dot i was late anyways (laughs) i start on the dot because i gotta be somewhere to play at a certain time and i'm like i'll clear my schedule for that like totally. That's almost the, the one thing that I'm hardly ever late for. Totally. I mean, well, we're talking about human behavior, yeah. right? It's like we're so much more motivated when other people like are buddy. involved and you have to be somewhere at the same time mm-hmm. together. So in contrast to this course which I paid for, which ge- it is genuinely good content, okay? Like I'm not knocking the instructor at all. But it's just the fact that it's like solo and requires me to be self-disciplined. Versus, which I told you about last week, I paid only $30, so less counterintuitively, Mm -hmm. to be part of a live comics making club. And it meets once a week for an hour and a half. Yeah. And it met this morning. And it was great. I loved my experience. And also, like, the same thing that you just said about footy, I was definitely going to be there. Like, even though I had to wake up early... I was like, I'm excited about showing up and being a part of this discussion with other people. And this is not quite the type of, if you read Wes Cow's article, you'll notice this, what I'm describing doesn't really fit in her description of cohort-based courses. One, because mine was affordable, like 30 Mm -hmm. bucks. And also because my class is only like 25 people versus like the courses she's describing are almost like master's levels type of courses where you're in sort of this college seminar situation with a hundred other students progressing through like something for a semester. You know how they always use the phrase, something is eating the world, like content is eating the world. Yeah. I think the next iteration is really just community is eating the world. Like everything community, like everything community is really just at the very core. It doesn't matter what you do. You're a brand in this case like they use cohort but cohort is basically another word for community i almost came in here and i was going to be like cohort is the new community like watch that word get used in the same way i i can see a little bit of nuance where cohort is a more specific it's more specific to 
education and academia is where my mind goes. And also cohort is defined by a sense of togetherness relative to time, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Because you start. Yes, exactly. Like if you start a class in two years and I do this class today. We're in different cohorts. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So there is a distinction there, which I believe does work. I mean, regardless of whether I have no idea what all MBA or Maven or these other cohort based courses and platforms are like, I really don't. However, learning in a cohort style, I believe in because, well, I also did a master's. So I saw that in action in like the most traditional academia type way. Yeah, that's so true because school is cohort based, right? Yeah, exactly. Physical attendance at a school, like a course is technically like digital online learning is not. So basically, it's not really anything new. You're just taking what's worked offline into the online world and dressing it up as like, you know, this is this type of learning. This is that type of learning. You know, I would say that not that institutions are perfect, like physical schools and universities are not perfect, but it's been a model for a really long time in human society. So there are definitely things about the way people learn in education that we know work in physical spaces and then like that phase of like Udemy and Masterclass and Linda kind of felt like a simplified version of what we know works in real life so it's like they weren't even they know that this isn't a replacement like this is just what's possible at that time yeah like this is my kind of bone to pick is that we've experienced such a massive development of the digital and online world that in some cases, it feels as though people that are developing these ideas and concepts do it because they want to invalidate the previous physical process. When in reality, the physical process is this complicated amalgamation of both practicality and human behavior, right? Yeah. So I think that's what's really interesting. I see a lot in opportunities and experiences that exist offline when it comes online people think they need to reinvent the wheel yeah versus just like hey actually why don't you just add some sort of element of call it convenience but actually you don't need to fundamentally change something that already works like don't invalidate it because you think there's this new shiny piece of technology that's available to you yeah i agree i think it's going to necessarily be different when things are translated online so even if you were trying to replicate exactly the physical university experience online because of the nature of the tools and how people interact on screens there will already be interesting differences that you can take advantage of or that might wind up becoming weaknesses Mm -hmm. i was thinking about the idea of a course or a cohort-based thing in relation to what we do I couldn't really think of anything because we would have to just like pivot into becoming like uh, like basically educators, right? Which we do, but we're not. I'm kind of in two early conversations with friends of ours about running workshops with Macon members. Yeah, like that'd be pretty dope, to be honest. Yeah. Like, I'm pretty excited. It's not the same because most likely they will be one-off things, but they are intentionally ideally in my world, workshops that are where members can be engaged and actually like contributing and talking as opposed to like a panel discussion, which we've done. We've done panels before. I guess what scares me about that is like, 
I, I, I personally put education, which is weird because I look at a lot of like mediocre education, like content that is right. But I personally place education on such a pedestal that is, I don't want to say it's sacred, but I feel like, <sighs> am I going to do it service? If someone is going to pay me for this opportunity to learn something, how do I make sure that I'm providing enough of a perspective on it that they'll learn? Mm. Or does it come down or do you just become a glorified coach and you're like, well, let me walk you through a problem mm. on how to answer it versus me actually like providing you with a rudimentary base. And I think both are valid, right? But I, I do think like for me personally, I never for a second want to think like, oh, I have experience. So I'm a teacher. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's I I appreciate you having that like respect and admiration for teachers. And it goes back to what we said earlier about like teachers also having this additional ability to be good at transferring skills, about guiding someone to learn something rather than just demonstrating something yeah. on YouTube, right? Like us having a conversation is a very low pressure way of educating somebody this is a type of educational content potentially you could yeah. say that but i would not say that we are well we, we're not because we're not interacting live with someone who's learning yeah so the podcast doesn't work as this perfect like example of a class right it's not what i was going to say is that i think you all you know and other people know that i would like to teach in a university setting and I have had friends ask me, oh, would you be interested in doing online courses, like teaching online courses, like either you develop a set of videos such as the one I paid for, right, like, or Skillshare or something like that. And I'm not I wouldn't say like no immediately off the bat, but it's not appealing in the same way mm -hmm. because I definitely personally get so much more energy by being on the same time in the same place as people. Yeah. And I just, I have found that really hard to replicate. I've been really lucky. I've been able to help uh, assistant teach a class in London, but I'm not there and they are. And I, I still feel that lack, mm -hmm. even though it's like, I'm not, it's not even like a Skillshare, like it's not pre-recorded. I am live on Zoom with them and we're going through the material together, but it would be, still be different by like being in the same space. Yeah, yeah. totally. Which is why I personally think that this post-COVID world might not be that different. Like, if you draw it out long enough, like, I think there will be certain behaviors we'll return to because if it makes sense or provides a better outcome, then there's a chance we'll just return to it. Versus like, hey, I don't want to go to the office because I don't want to waste two hours of my day uh, going. And then companies on the flip side would be like, hey, I'd rather save the money. So I think that ultimately there's a function at the very core and the function is fulfilled. Then obviously we've just now been able to experience this or that and we can pick and choose how we want to move forward. Yeah. I mean, the great pro about the Internet has always been true, whether that's whatever channel it is, is that it can reach everyone around the world of all ages and genders and experiences and backgrounds. So that is true about online learning if it's a successful continuing to use that phrase cohort-based course then it, it can benefit from having students all around the world of different backgrounds and perspectives and that mm. 
that could be enough of a benefit compared to like a physical course where you're likely to be in a room with people who are the same people who can be physically near you. Mm -hmm. Should we move on? Yeah, let's do it. My topic this week is the barbell strategy, how not to be a starving artist by Richard Meadows. So this was suggested by Pauline Chen via an Instagram DM. I've been speaking to Pauline uh, every once in a while. And actually it just was perfect timing because this week I didn't have time to share any links or potential topics on Discord. So when I was looking, this came up. It just ended up being like the perfect topic in relation to stuff that was happening in Discord, like conversations that were going on. And I got actually really excited because I, I, I think this concept of the barbell strategy actually has a lot of application across the board, not just in what we'll talk about today. But before we get into that, last week we talked about sort of this new digital economy and how people are inadvertently going to take on more roles and have more opportunity. It was based off of a article called The Cooperation Economy, published in Not Boring by Packy McCormick. Yes. And in that piece, or I guess in our conversation, what we talked about. In the episode, you asked me how many jobs or standing opportunities I had. That had the potential to generate revenue at some point. Yes. And I said three to four. You said six to seven. I Yeah, I just pulled the number out of my ass. Like it's, <laughs> well, it's, now he comes on and like, says he pulls the number out of his ass. Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely like up there, but it's I, I couldn't say if it was like six or seven. I'm, I'm, okay, so then our friend called. Yeah, I think six to seven is pretty accurate. Having done yet another audit, Eugene stays by his number. Our friend Colleen. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not I'm not making money off all of them. Like there's, and you'll, you'll it actually is 100% applicable to what we'll talk about today with the barbell strategy. Okay, to go back to why we are revisiting this, our friend and Macon supporter Colleen in the Discord listened to the episode and highlighted this segment. She found it really interesting and asked other Macon members, well, how many things do other people have going on? And so this discussion happened, which was about how you choose to get paid, how many things you should have going on, whether work can be deep or shallow, depending on how much you're doing. All of these things, which I think are relevant to the barbell strategy. And also the shallowness probably translates back to the cooperation aspect of it that we discussed last week. Yeah. So there's not really a right or wrong thing. What I, what I did find interesting was Leo, one of the members on Discord was like, well, I feel that in Hong Kong, people are doing like a ton of different things, which is 100% valid. I use this example of how you are a C-list actor on TV who also is a model, DJs on, you know, a Sunday night and also is one twentieth of an owner of a boba tea shop or something. Like there's just a ton of things. I don't know if it's part of the Hong Kong mentality, but for sure it's not like in the US where like you're an actor and you just act. Like actually I think that some actors or, or creators that have crossed over have been able to be somewhat successful. You'd probably know better than me. Yeah, I mean, Hong Kong's weird that way. It's not even a recent phenomenon. It's been a long time phenomenon. Even Jackie Chan was singing. The, I was just going to say, well, I wasn't going to say Jackie Chan, but like Hong Kong entertainment singer. industry is a weird one. You start out singing and then you move into acting, which is, I don't know why, because it's not necessarily like those skills are not the same. Anyway, Hong Kong's a weird place. 
We're just like a tiny microcosm. Just to continue moving on. So this piece starts off by highlighting sort of this traditional story around the starving artist and how in many ways the starving artist kind of is putting all their eggs in their basket of artistry. So enter the barbell strategy by Taleb. In short, it means that you only focus on the ends and never the middle. So if you're unfamiliar with the barbell, it's a metal bar and on the ends you have the weights, the plates that basically slide in. So there are two concepts at play here. There's the horizontal and the vertical barbell concept. When it comes to the horizontal concept, as it pertains to jobs, think about on the left side, on one barbell side, on one plate side, a stable, secure job. And then on the other side, with the other plates, is a risky side project or side projects. And in this barbell strategy, you maintain a secure, easy job, I mean, relatively easy, uh, while pursuing highly speculative side projects. And you avoid the middle ground. So the middle ground is anything that you know, it doesn't, it doesn't satisfy something because it, it in itself doesn't have a high output or return. It's basically neither secure nor risky and neither stable in the sense of financially stable or like really creatively rewarding. Yes. That would be the middle. So you want to avoid that. Yeah. And then in a vertical concept, what you have is at the very top, you once again have risky side projects. Uh, and then on the bottom, you have stable, secure work. But in the middle, what you're talking about is like you're avoiding any jobs that both don't pay you enough, right? Or they don't provide any sort of outsized potential reward or output. My understanding of the vertical one is that you focus on either side in sequence. So you might have a phase of your life where you are doing just risky side projects and then a phase where you do the secure, stable job. Whereas yeah. the horizontal one is doing the two simultaneously. It's really interesting because this really resonates with me because when, you know, Alex and I left Hypebeast to do this, we were very much all our eggs in one basket. We had quit. We had done this. I mean, in retrospect, yes, you probably had to do it because you were creating a, another media company. But at the same time, it was like we never really had that stable income. That could have been something else. It could have been creative agency work. Well, right? in that case, you were doing the vertical strategy where yeah. Hypebeast was the secure, stable job. And so you guys were both like full time there. And then you guys flipped to doing yeah. the purely risky side project. And we, which was essentially your full time job. But yeah, there wasn't really anything that was on the risky speculative side that could provide something. I mean, I, I had projects here and there, but I wouldn't necessarily say that they fulfilled and created that balance, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? So if I if I continue the story, it's like, you know, if we had done this properly, if we had employed a barbell strategy, what would have happened was, okay, Macon is this sort of highly speculative, uncertain side of things. And then the other side is stable, lucrative, or just work that pays the bills, like doing agency work, you know? Like we started making in what, 2016? And we, I think between those, you know, three years, until we started Adam Studios, we did, I don't know, maybe three or four agency jobs because we just never yeah. sought it out. Well, and that could have changed the trajectory. So while the horizontal one happens in a balanced manner, the vertical one is asymmetrical in the sense that you focus on one thing and then you focus on another thing. So you might spend two years, five years building up a career 
And then after you've accumulated this wealth, you now have the freedom to do what you want in far riskier or less lucrative opportunities. So you see this a lot, actually, I'm going to use Hong Kong as an example, but you see a lot of bankers that retire at 35 and then they open a cafe or something. Yeah. That happens a ton. I mean, exactly. it's probably all around the world, but especially in Hong Kong, because there's so many bankers. Yeah, that would be a good example. And then if, you know, they decide, okay, we've kind of run out of capital, then after five years, I go back to banking. Yeah. And so it's... Or I become same, an investor or something, yeah. The same things are on those two plates. It's just that the horizontal is more of what we've done in our life, where you have both going on. And vertical is really setting aside like phases of your life for one thing or the other. Yeah. One way to look at it is that the horizontal barbell is probably a way that can govern your life until you pass away. But the other one is going to be very definitive chapters. Like I'm going to, yeah. I'm going to hit banking super hard for 20 years. And then after that, I'm going to chill. But the one thing I, I am curious is that there is no mention around the psychology of creating when you are the starving artist, which I think is actually not necessarily the same for everybody, but I think there's something there. Maybe having no money and making art in those conditions results in a different kind of creative outcome. Yeah. Compared to the art you make when you do have financial security, which makes me kind of bummed out because I don't want to say that like, oh, people should be under financial stress in order to make great art. That doesn't sound that doesn't sound like the right kind of ideal situation. Yeah. In the world. I mean, have you ever had to endure creating under less than ideal financial situations? To be honest, no. Because yeah. I've always had my parents as a safety net. Yeah. Like I I was similar at the same time, like not like I was getting paid a lot in the in the very early stages of my career. That in itself probably created a work ethic and a hunger that you still think about, like even Alex and I, sometimes we talk about that. I mean, how do I put this? Like I feel like grinding it out is still within touching distance. So you don't really lose that, which I think changes as well. Because basically when you have financial stability, your opportunities can simultaneously increase and decrease. And what I mean by decrease is because you just can say no to a lot of things. You don't test yourself as much because you don't need to. Yeah. It's true, but I would also just not want to glorify being in a position of financial instability. Like, I would never say, oh, like, it's a great thing that you're not making a lot of money right now because that means you're going to make more, like, interestingly creative choices. Well, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't look at it like that because I've never been in that position of, like, a flat artist. But I do think there's something about needing to just grind it out. I'm not going to say like, hey, you know what, go out and uh, work for free. Because obviously that's a that's a privilege in itself. That's a discussion around unpaid labor, et cetera. But I think there is something around finding a way to replicate that experience of going out and like having to push through when, and also recognize like, oh, am I actually about this life? And or do I have the desire to continue doing this in light of a lack of financial stability? Maybe what this translates to is being comfortable with taking bigger risks compared to your situation. So you and I might be in financially stable places and it would benefit us to therefore take 
bigger risks. Yeah. I wonder if there is some sort of hybrid approach where you could start off with one thing. So for example, in the example of the vertical where you have financial stability on one side, secure job, and the other side, it's a risky, uncertain job. It doesn't mean that you maintain that over the course of the whole duration of your life, your career, right? Because in, in theory, I look back and I'm like, I was definitely the vertical barbell and not in a secure job and not in a lucrative job. Yeah. But then some, at some point that actually was able to rotate into a horizontal barbell. I see that in yeah. your trajectory. I, well, you I, know, it's interesting what you said about psychological effect of being that starving artist in terms of creative output. But I think there's definitely also a psychological effect in having to grind shitty jobs and not getting your work recognized financially, like yeah. a detrimental effect on people. A lot of things that people think they want comes at the hands of sacrifice. What do you mean? Like you, there's a, well, actually, I think it's actually beyond just like Chinese culture, but there's a saying where like wealth lasts three generations. I'm not familiar with You're that familiar saying. This? I love this saying. So I'm not familiar with this saying at all. So basically what they say is like the first generation is the one that builds a foundation, builds the wealth. The second generation has the ability to reap some of the rewards, right? But by the third generation, because they are separated from the hard work of the first generation, they piss it all away and then the cycle restarts. Mm. What, what was my takeaway from that? You, Because you said, how is this related to the things people think they want comes at the hand of well, sacrifice? I think it's like sacrifice. Yeah. Basically, I think sacrifice and working hard. I, this is probably in the eyes of some people, like the way I glorify, like the way that I, I glorify the struggle or whatever. Like, I think it's not something you do for your whole life, but it does develop and, and create certain habits. But to what end? I guess what I'm challenging you is. What is the hard work for? Is it for greater wealth? Like, what am I working hard for? So that's the thing is like, if you don't build up, call the, the the muscle memory or whatever to take that vertical barbell and flip it, then you'll always be sort of stuck in that one thing. You'll be like kind of in between. You'll be doing, you'll be actually in the middle. Like mm. what they're saying is like, you actually have to pick the very definitive left and right side yeah. and don't operate down the middle. That's what I'm saying is like, you have to, the risk of you not having an outcome is in some ways part of this equation. Sure, but I don't, I think I, it's possible to employ the barbell strategy of like secure, stable job and like risky side projects without actually having to like always be grinding. But yeah, of course, I, I'm not saying that you grind 24 seven. Like, but I, think, I think they're separate. Like you can employ the barbell strategy without burning out from overworking yourself. Yes, that I don't disagree with. But what I'm trying to say is that even if you want to attain a certain level of success to have that stable job, you probably need to make some sort of sacrifice to have that opportunity in the first place. Do you like- Well, I mean, I don't know even, you still have not said to me exactly what sacrifice is because- well, I mean, sacrifice is time. There's an exchange of all, I believe there's always going to be an exchange. I don't know if I would I mean, paint it as like sacrifice. Sacrificing time, sacrificing experience. Everything takes time. It, you do, you exchange your time spent on something for like potential rewards or not rewards. So I, I mean, I agree. I just don't, I don't know if I'd use the word sacrifice. I mean, I- Things the, don't come for free. Things don't come from nothing. 
Yeah, but what I'm I'm saying is for you to even set up the opportunity to have a horizontal strategy where you have stability, um, to have financial stability on one side requires you to have a certain level, right? Mm. Someone's willing to hire you and pay you this amount of money, but how Mm. do you arrive at that? Mm -hmm. Do you sit on your ass and play video games all day? Like, that's what I'm trying to get at. Yeah. There has to be sacrifice at some point for you to have any sort of level, like especially looking at the current, the current world of like YouTubers and stuff are under the expectation that, hey, you know what? If I create something, I'll be that person. YouTubing takes hard work too. It, I would it not 100% takes, it. but I don't think most people understand how much work goes into it. Look, at, we've been talking about a podcast, like how many people start a podcast and within eight episodes or three episodes, they haven't gotten traction and they quit. Oh man, it's being the same here thing, today right? has taken real endurance for us to get up to 172 episodes. That's yeah, what I'm it saying. It ain't easy. It's like I, what I I'm guess, trying to say. Okay, okay, well, I don't know that if you're really responding to like a general opinion or not, but you seem to think that this is a general opinion that things come easier than they do. I think for a lot of people, yeah. I'm sure. I will just agree to disagree at this point. I can't say otherwise. People, chime in. Do you think that things come easily? I mean, how many, podcast, how many people, though, probably, how many people would you ask like, Hey, this is the question, like the famous Guy Raz question. Like, what did you think it'd be like to do so-and-so and what has been the reality? Mm-hmm. How many people reply with, like, I thought it'd be easier. I don't listen to Dude, how I built this people, and therefore well, I'm telling you right say. now, I don't know. Okay. I, think, I think I have a very strong opinion on around hard work. Cause I think that, well, I'm, it's confirmation bias, right? Like I look at, <laughs> at my, least you can call yourself out on it. I mean, I think that for the most part, a lot of people that have attained a certain level of success, whether it equates to like the actual sort of outcome, but I think a lot of it comes down to like what they believe to be hard work. The reason I have opinions on hard work is because I am skeptical of people who advertise their success as coming from hard work when really it comes from generational wealth. Yeah, I I, I don't disagree with that either. So that's part of my response, like where that comes from is like... I don't want to tell young people, oh, you get success by just like working hard. When in actuality, a lot of people who reach success, they have. But that's also subjective too, because I think there's there's bands of success, right? I mean, also success is what you make of it. That's a famous Megan question. What do you consider to be success? Yes. I mean, there's definitely a fundamental difference between you and I in terms of how much do you grind yourself down to achieve something? And some people, like it means... And honestly, it doesn't matter. Like if that person out there doesn't want to do it, then I don't really care. But I'm just saying like most people that think they want something don't see what's happening behind the scenes. Well, this is what it is, is that you have, it seems like from my perspective, only increased in how hard you work over the years. And whereas me, I have decreased in how hard I want to work. And I think there is that difference. And that's well, where mean, our perspectives come from. For me, working hard comes down to maybe like being fortunate to have found exactly that, like to have a level of financial stability that allows me to pursue things I'm passionate about with with no certain outcome. Sure. That's really no, I mean, I'm happy for you. And where I come from is I'm really enjoying things that aren't related to work. Yeah. Well... Did you have anything else you wanted to say about the actual article and what was written in the article before we wrap things up? So I guess just in closing, what I can do is kind of recap some of the things that Meadows, the author, says. And he uses sort of the difference between a starving artist and the barbell strategy. 
So for example, as a starving artist, if you fail, you have no backup plan and no financial security. In the barbell strategy, if you fail, you're still working towards financial independence by other means. As a starving artist, you stretch the patience and generosity of friends, family, and society to a breaking point. In the barbell strategy, you're completely self-reliant. For the starving artist, it requires you to eat a few shit sandwiches, doing unpleasant things to pay the bills, or compromising on your values. On the barbell strategy, no need to compromise your integrity or sell out. So here are a few examples. I think they're all pretty valid in that regard. This paragraph towards the end sort of encapsulates everything. The barbell strategy clearly separates bread and butter work from creative pursuits. Your identity isn't solely tied up in one or the other, and you don't have to bastardize what you do in an attempt to curry commercial flavor. I think that if I recap this conversation with you, we probably both have achieved a level of that horizontal barbell. I agree. But then I guess maybe in retrospect, like how we arrived there may be a little bit different. Also true. And I would say that this, we said this earlier, but the strategy employed is going to look different for each person i would say that what you and i consider to be working hard or working enough is going to be different for other people as well like someone's someone can consider themselves to be working really hard to try to get to that horizontal barbell strategy and maybe from another person's perspective it's not Good place to cap things off for the day. If you are interested in hearing more about Macon, reading and listening to some of our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at Macon.com, M-A-E-K-A-N.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by sharing this podcast with a friend or supporting us via Patreon.com slash Macon. Patreon members get access to the Macon Discord where we talk about episodes of Making It Up and everything else going on in global creative culture. Become a member and join us in those conversations. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up.